The Glenn Show is brought to you by the Manhattan Institute. Please consider becoming a paid subscriber at glennlowry.substack.com. As a subscriber, you will receive new episodes on Mondays instead of Fridays and get access to exclusive content, ticket pre-sales to live events, monthly Q&As with Glenn Lowry and John McWhorter, and other benefits. Your contribution will also help to fund grassroots initiatives that empower Black development across the country as we donate 10% of our profits to the Woodson Center. Thank you. Hello, everybody. This is Glenn Lowry. You've tuned in to The Glenn Show. I am Merton Stoltz, professor of the social sciences at Brown University and John Paulson, senior fellow at the Manhattan Institute, which sponsors The Glenn Show. Uh, and I am here with Shermichael Singleton, uh, who is a young African-American Republican political strategist and television radio personality uh, covering politics and uh, so forth uh, and active in uh, campaign politics on the Republican side of the aisle. And uh, I welcome you to the show. Sure, it's 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 an honor uh, to be with you, Professor Lowry. I mean, <laughs> your reputation speaks uh, for itself. Uh, so I, I'm excited to have this dialogue. Graduate of Morehouse College. Love year? Mother Morehouse, 2012. Oh, that recently. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I'm I am only 33, Professor Lowry. I got a, I got a lot of uh, more years to mature, as they say. <laughs> <laughs> Well, uh, my youngest son is 32. Uh, oh, so there we go. <laughs> so yeah. you technically could be my father. There we go. <laughs> or grandfather, if you would. Depending, <laughs> Depending on how you get it. <laughs> <laughs> uh, my lovely wife has just walked into the room. I don't know if she wants to say hello because it was her suggestion that I, that I talk with you at the Glenn Show. Oh, very nice. This is hey, Lawan. Nice to meet you, Mrs. Lowry. Nice to meet you. Thank you for recommending me yeah. uh, on the podcast. <laughs> I appreciate that. Yeah. So how'd you get into politics? Man, you, you know, so that's a, that's a fascinating question. So I grew up in New Orleans and my mom decided to move us from New Orleans to Texas. I think I was either around 10 or 11 years old. And I'll never forget, I had a, a teacher at the time by the name of Tammy Hicks, Mrs. Tammy Hicks. She was a history uh, teacher in a suburb that we were living in. I still stay in touch with her here and there. And I'll never forget, we had a project where we had to choose a president of our choosing, and we had to do our little research and read a book and do a presentation uh, b- before the class. And I remember, you know, going through the litany of names, and some folks chose Thomas Jefferson and George Washington. I mean, you know, you're, you're young kids, so you hear all of these these interesting young stories from all of the different shows you would watch on PBS or whatever uh, about American history. And I chose Abraham Lincoln. I always heard a lot of good things about him from my great grandfather, uh, who's a military guy. I said, you know what? I'll I'll choose Lincoln. I told my mom, Hey, I have this project. And said, Oh, great. You know, I'll help you, but I'll help you with it. Uh, read the book, got any issues. I'll help you read through the book and, and we'll go and get all the supplies so you can do a great presentation. Okay, this is New Orleans. This is a public school? So in New Orleans, I was at a magnet school. Uh-huh. So, so it's interesting. You don't hear a lot about magnet schools anymore. So, so I went to a school called New Orleans Free School that was started by a guy named uh, uh, Rob Ferris. We used to call him Dr. Bob, uh, sh- short for Rob, obviously. So Dr. Bob, a, a white guy, PhD educator, was an old school hippie. 
And there was this unique sort of idea and process with the free school being that it was a different approach uh, to academics. It, it was more of a engaging environment with the students. I mean, obviously, you, you had to have tests, et cetera, to, to capture where a student was academically and their ability to retain a certain information. But, but it was more, if you would think of a school like Harvard or Brown, where you are, where professors are really engaging the students with the knowledge, with the material. That was sort of the concept of the free school, in addition to having well-rounded students in the arts, the music, science, math, et cetera. So I spent all of my time there until we moved. And then when we went to Texas, uh, then I went to a, a public school, which was a very different experience, I got to tell you. Okay, well, we could go into that, but I was you was talking about the project on uh, yeah, the yeah. president. So, so with, in Ms. Hicks' course, uh, Mrs. Hicks' course, we, we're doing this history project. I chose Lincoln, and I'll never forget this. I'm reading about Lincoln and the Emancipation Proclamation. I remember telling my mom, I was like, well, I was like, so are we, are we Republicans? <laughs> and she said, no, we're, we no, are not no Republicans. Uh, she said, but you need to call your grandfather and talk to him about that one. So I called my great-grandfather. His name was Joseph. And I, I said, Grandpa, I'm doing this history project uh, on Abraham Lincoln. And my mom told me to call you because I asked her if, if we were Republicans. And he sort of laughed and he said, oh, that's, that's an interesting question. He said, you know, funny enough, my parents voted Republican. And when he first could vote, I think the first two presidents, first two or three, maybe first two, he voted Republican. And then he switched during the Goldwater. Uh, and I learned about this stuff, obviously, in more detail as I got older. But at the time, I was like, oh, okay, we switched. And, and I remember him saying, they're not the same people they used to be when I voted Republican. And it always stuck with me. So as I, I matriculated, went to middle school, went up to high school, I started something called TARS, the Teenage Republican Society. Uh, I went to a pretty diverse high school, probably 50%, 60% white, um, a sizable percent of, of black uh, students, and then the rest were, were Hispanic Latinos. And so I started the TARS group. Oh, it's about 10, 12 of us. Uh, that was great. My tennis coach used to be sort of our sponsored advisor, if you will. And then when I went on the Morehouse, uh, I remember one of my teachers saying, now, you know, you're not going to be able to do this Republican stuff when you go to Morehouse. And I said, well, just, just wait and see. So I get to Morehouse and they had a college Republican chapter years ago and it became defunct. No, no one ever restarted it. I mean, I could have been 10, 15 years. And so I came in the era of the first black president. I was like, well, look, my views are this particular way. So I'm going to start a Republican chapter for people who may have my views. And sure enough, I, I did. And Professor Lowry, it, it was a, a great organization. We had a good you know, 20, 30 plus members. Every time we would host events on campus, a bunch of, of, of the brothers would always come to our events because Morehouse prides itself on the intimacy of debate. That sort of intellectual pursuit of ideas. Okay. Excuse me for interrupting you, yeah. Sir Michael, but I just got to ask you this. You're at Morehouse. Obama is ascending to the presidency yeah. of the United States <laughs> and you are a Republican. I am. And, uh, <laughs> you know, look, it, it was interesting because clearly I, I understood and recognized the historic moment uh, yeah. of President Obama. And I personally don't really have any dislikes of him. I mean, I maybe have some political differences, ideologically speaking, but I think for the most part, Obama's a, a pretty thoughtful individual. Uh, and so it was like, hey, this is a black guy running for president. This is great. This is history making. Uh, I remember growing up listening to the stories of my grandparents, my great grandparents, 
um, who at that point, my great-grandfather was no longer living, but my great-grandmother was still alive up until two years ago. So she lived way into her 90s. So I grew up hearing all of those stories as a child of the South of their experiences. So I recognized the moment, but I also remember growing up and, and once I started to get into politics, I always remember my grandfather always saying, you know, you're going to always have to carve your own path because a lot of people are not in our community are just frankly not going to see things your way in terms of politics and party politics. And, and, and I was just raised to carve my own environment, if you will. And so I said, OK, well, if everybody else sort of gets to have a, a place or a space, as they like to say these days, where their views can be shared freely why shouldn't someone who's a conservative who happens to also be a Republican have the same opportunity, the same space, the same environment? And so I created one for myself and for other individuals who were like-minded. And it worked. What is it about the Republican view of things uh, or the conservative view of things that appeals to you? Well, I would definitely say the conservative view. I, I don't some folks may disagree with me on this. I am not convinced that either political party, Democrat or Republican, to be quite frank, are best representative, best representative, contextually speaking, of what liberalism means. If I go back and read uh, philosophical thinkers and theorists on liberalism any more than if I were to go and read Roger Scruton or uh, Edmund Burke, or uh, Robert Nozick or Oakshot, and some of them are teetered towards the uh, libertarianism, but it's still all under the umbrella of conservatism, philosophically speaking. I, I'm not convinced that either party truly represents those ideas contextually. With that said, to answer your question, uh, what is it about conservatism that I sort of adhere to? Not to racialize this, Professor Lowry, but I remember growing up listening to the stories of my grandparents and great-grandparents about the importance that we always had as Black Americans, a family of discipline, of structure, of maintaining a certain uh, system of customs and behaviors, because those things were, were perceived as being very critical, uh, not only for our existence and, and, and sustainability, but also in order for us to sort of have some level of lateral movement upward, meaning educational attainment, some level of, of economic and financial freedom. And so when you, when you think about those things in the midst of a, some would argue, a continuously shaping cultural, political environment, which liberals, liberalism contextually would perhaps more so advocate for, uh, the conservative belief is this is great because we understand that human nature is constantly evolving. And we understand that we're not against it, but we do recognize that in that evolvement, there are some things that should be preserved. And so being raised with those beliefs of preserving certain ideals and customs was important to me. And I still think it's very important. And when you look at our culture today, our politics today, you have a lot of people that are sort of believe in everything, anything. They're susceptible to anything. And as a conservative, I would say, let's pause here. Let's have some caution uh, when we think about certain economic policies. Let's have some caution uh, when we think of certain social policies and I could run the gamut of, of what that means. Let's have some caution uh, when we talk about immigration and whether or not it's in the interest or not in the interest of our country's economic survivability and sustainability. Let's have caution. And, and so I think the conservative disposition, where some people would say, oh, you guys are reactionary. No, that's, that's Roger Scruton wrote brilliantly about this. We're, we're not reactionary. We're just merely saying that 
it is easier to destroy certain uh, levels of success, certain things that we have attained and built than it is to, or to destroy. It's easy to destroy those things rather than to maintain them. And so the conservative is saying, let's just slow down a little bit. Let's assess all of the variables. And then we determine what's the best path moving forward. And so to me, as a black person, knowing the history of black people, I think that really has been sort of a guiding principle uh, for us as a community. And so that's why I'm a conservative. I, I, I wrote a piece for Ebony Magazine several years ago, and I, I argued in the piece that if you look at black people uh, from slavery, maybe to the 60s of the civil rights era, we are, contextually speaking, one of the greatest examples of conservatism exemplified in real time. And I, and I would love to find someone to disagree with me on that. Yeah. Booker T. Washington. Mm-hmm. But he is often set alongside W.E.B. Du Bois as two paths, two different paths for black progress. Du Bois founding the NAACP, Du Bois evolving into a Marxist critic of capitalism and of uh, imperialism. Uh, du Bois, the eloquent, uh, profound thinker and writer, uh, probably higher ranked if you were to do a poll in is certainly in the intelligentsia than mm -hmm. uh, Booker T. Washington in the yeah, history yeah. of African Americans, but representing a different point of view. And I'm wondering how you square, you know, I, I see the I see the case. I see the Burkean uh and Scruton Scrutonian mm -hmm. case mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. for we're not all that clever. We can't reinvent all of our social institutions, our norms and our mores and way of a, life every generation. This isn't a science experiment, the human experience and condition that is that we, we're putting in a Petri dish and we're sort of just testing out and seeing what works and what doesn't work. Uh, I would argue that, that human beings are far more, more complicated uh, than that. And I would also argue we're far more fragile than that. I mean, history showcases that. I mean, look, for goodness sakes, look at the level of tribalism and discord in our country today based on a, a plethora of, of different issues validates my, my point. Now, granted, some of my liberal friends would disagree with me on that. Uh, but, but again, I think the conservative is proper in arguing that there is indeed a case about sustaining certain values that are critical and part and parcel of the human experience. But what if you I wanted to those ask things, you, and what is the experience? Uh, I didn't mean to cut you off. Yeah. Uh, I just want to ask you that, you know, the Du Boisian side of that, which is, uh, which is resistance, change, um, it, which is throwing off the shackles of restraint and oppression, uh, and uh, the role that. Uh, that plays in African-American history. I mean, you know, slavery, Jim Crow and all that. You need a civil rights movement. You need a protest. You need a reform. Uh, and that that's not a conservative politics. In fact, the conservatives were standing in the schoolhouse door and, this, and uh, asserting states' rights and all this kind of stuff. And uh, the, uh, the emancipation of those uh, uh, peasants who came out of slavery and, and, and built this foundation of African-American social uh, advancement uh, re required a, a, a war and, and, and a movement and all the rest. I mean, where does that figure in your, in your philosophy? You know, that, that's so interesting. You, you raise that point because in the piece that I referenced in Ebony, um, I, I gave a lot of consideration to that. 
I just thought it was it was important if I'm going to make the case for why I personally believe the black experience is uniquely a conservative one. Uh, I think conservatism through the lens of a black person in, in many ways is disparate from that of a white person, although I think there are also parallels. Uh, there are certain things that I, I think we would probably agree to, but I think there's some things that, that are frankly disparate. And you think about the words of progress and moving forward, and it's almost like the, the word progress, and I don't mean progressivism in this current modern sense, but it almost presents itself as a double entendre, if you mean, for the folks who may understand a little French. Uh, it, it's a word, it's an idea that with two different meanings, because we want and understand progress because we understand we need to move forward because of slavery and a host of other things that were systemically against us, right? But we have also been, as a collective, very cautious of too much progress. Because then the question sort of becomes, well, if we move too fast, is that any collective interest? Uh, you know, you think about Dr. King and, and Malcolm X in that regard, right? Well, Malcolm X was like, wait a minute here, we got to slow this stuff down. There, there are some things unique to the black experience that must be preserved. And you had others who were arguing, well, the idea of preservation means integration. Uh, and so that's where I would say my personal opinion and thoughts would fall in that regard. Okay. So you have been involved in retail politics and organizing and trying to get people involved, going door to door or whatever it is, and trying to recruit enthusiasm and interest in young and communities of color for the Republican uh, program. Talk about that a little you know, bit. I, I did that for a long, long time, um, really trying to expand the Republican voter bloc with more people of color, generally speaking, not just black people, Latinos, Asians, et cetera, just because I've always believed that most of those groups, when, when you look at us, tend to lean more conservative uh, culturally tend to lean more conservative uh, economically, at least traditionally. You can have uh, some different thoughts in, in modern terms with my particular demo group and maybe Gen Zers and et cetera. Uh, but but I, I always felt that there should be the opportunity for all people in the country to choose or at least have the option to choose a party or a candidate that belongs to a party that they believe speaks to them. And some people say, oh, wait a minute, Sir Michael, you're talking about identity politics. Well, all politics is identity. This absurd idea uh, that identity politics is something that is uniquely confined to the left is a bit ludicrous to me. I can tell you as a strategist, when I'm developing strategies as a former coalitions advisor uh, for a presidential candidate, I'm looking at evangelicals. I'm looking at that more so traditional chamber of commerce type Republican. Uh, I'm looking at all these different groups. I'm, I'm looking at my suburbanites. And there are, these groups are different. Again, there are always crossovers of groups. But I know that the language for the evangelicals and the interests of the evangelicals aren't necessarily going to be the same for my chamber of commerce or, or my suburbanites. I know that. And so I understand I need to, one, hone in on the, the policy interests of those particular groups and craft the message, one, for the candidate, uh, but two, uh, for my folks on the ground who are doing the engagement, who, who are doing the targeting. Uh, and, and so I, I think, you know, that, that, is fundamental to understand when you think about electoral politics and what a strategist actually does in terms of targeting different people. Uh, but to go back to, to the initial question, I always felt that Republicans weren't successful in crafting messages or honing in on the policies that may be 
of interest to black voters. And so when I first got into Republican politics, I said, okay, this is something that I really want to tackle. I want to try this. And then I met people like Ed Gillespie and so many others who said, well, you know, the party should do this, but we haven't been very successful in a very long time. Then you start studying history and you look at when was the last time Republicans were electorally competitive with black voters. Like, holy smoke, you're talking 40, 50 years ago. Uh, in part, you can really start looking at the Goldwater thing. I mean, you start to see some crossover of far before that. But Goldwater and the whole states' rights issues pertaining to civil rights really was the catalyst where most black uh, voters were just like, you know what, this is just not the same Republican Party that perhaps my father uh, voted in or that the family really uh, advocated and supported. I mean, people may not know this, but once upon a time, historically speaking, the Republican Party had such a strong uh, percent of support from black voters. It was known as the Negro Party. Then you started having the formation of the Lily White movement to sort of move blacks out of the party. So then you fast forward to the modern day Republican Party. You're like, wait a minute here. Yeah, this history is great, but is this really the same party? And so that's what, that's the journey that I sort of began to embark on. And I realized, wow, there are a lot of challenges with this, uh, even talking to black voters about how some economic policies may be in their interest or school choice policies may be in the interest, it's the message. And message, messaging is important. It's a critical com component of politics. And people are completely turned off by the message, one, and they're completely turned off by some of the positions that many would say, I don't see these positions being in the best interest of someone who views themselves as being marginalized in terms of climbing up the economic ladder, educational ladder. And so I saw some significant hurdles. And there have been folks that have tried to address this, uh, but the party writ large, I don't think necessarily has an interest in trying to address this. And this is just my experience having worked for a whole bunch of uh, political candidates. Let's talk about some of those candidates. Uh, you worked for Ben Carson, didn't you? Dr. Ben Dr. Carson. Carson uh, Newt Ging former Speaker of the House, Newt Gingrich. Uh, Mitt Romney, uh, with Carson went into the Trump administration uh, for a little bit until the president got rid of me because I criticized him. Now, Dr. Lowry, I am not one to mince my words in terms of what I think. And some people don't always like that. <laughs> <laughs> what happened? You got fired? Well, I, I did. You know, I, I wrote an article. I want to say it was a couple months before we all, before the, the nomination selection process. And I pretty much said that I didn't think Donald Trump was the best representative for the Republican Party. And I, and I elucidated why. I, I thought that some of his pronouncements about voters of color was problematic. As someone who had worked so hard to try to bridge that divide, um, I, I didn't think his past was representative of what I believe a conservative should espouse to and should represent and should live up to. I, all of those things were problematic for me. So I wrote the piece. Ultimately, the guy was selected, and as a practitioner of electoral politics, I was like, well, hey, these are my philosophical beliefs, but the voters have chosen. And sometimes the voters would choose something that you don't always agree with. Uh, and so I said, you know what, look, this guy's a president. I'm being asked to go and serve Dr. Carson. I've been asked to serve the country. I'm going to do it, uh, issues aside, and we're going to hope uh, that the person uh, leads well, and we're going to hope that my concerns uh, don't necessarily come to fruition. So it wasn't anything you did while you were in office serving no. as an aide to Ben Carson. No, it was an article. It was an opinion that you had. <laughs> okay, I mean, I'm I moved to say uh, African American, Republican, Trump serving, politically savvy, under thirty year old people are as rare as hen's teeth. 
who's in charge over there if they boot you for having a reasonable and defensible position before you signed on, not like you was talking out of school or going against the policy or anything like that. Oh, they had to be crazy to get rid of you. Man. Well, you know, it, it was so funny because I, I remember going through the process, a, a good buddy of mine, I won't say his name, uh, but he ultimately became the deputy chief of staff when I left. And he said, hey, he said, Sherm, you know, they have some questions about this article that came up. And I told them like, hey, you know, Schmeichel's a very smart guy. He he thinks for himself, but I'll talk to him and see where he's at. And so he said, hey, they're kind of worried about this. They just want to know if you get the position you're not going to get the position and then start tweeting and talking about how horrible the president is. And I said, Andrew, I said, look, man, um, I'm here to work for Doc. I got to protect Doc. I got to make sure that that he is best advised to make the best decisions at this agency for people who really rely on HUD. It's a, it's a, That's uh, Dr. Ben Carson. Dr. Ben Carson. Uh, it's a, it's a, a critical organization uh, for millions of, of individuals, particularly those who are trying to access affordable housing. So agreements or disagreements aside, I got a job to do and I'm going to do my job well. I don't have to worry about that. I'm not going to get into the role and start acting crazy. I'm not naive. Like this isn't my first political rodeo. He told them, said, all right, all right, that's good. I mean, if that's what he says, he's committing to that. He's going to do his job. We don't have any big big deal with it. I get into the role and I remember, I, I can't remember who the person was, but there was someone who was in a position and was still saying crazy stuff about Trump. And I, I'll never forget my buddy came to me and he said, hey, they're having a meeting at the White House. He was the White House liaison at the time. And he said, I got to go over there and figure this out. Comes back later that day and he said, hey, they're going to start getting rid of people who criticize Trump because there are people in these positions who are still being, I mean, they're just still being critical. And, you know, Trump doesn't necessarily like that. That's his personality. He can be a little sensitive sometimes. It is what it is. This is nothing negative against him, but that's just the reality. We are who we are as people, right? Uh, and eventually it came to me and I'll never forget I asked my buddy, I said, hey, we're not going to have any issues here, right? Because I would rather quit. I've never been fired before. We've never, we're not going to have any issues. He said, oh, no, 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 you're good. You're good. And I'll never forget that particular day I was meeting with folks from Jenny May, all of the, the different entities that work with HUD, really trying to engulf myself and learn more about the role of the agency. So when the secretary was finally confirmed, I'm ready to go on day one. I'm reading through thousands of papers, uh, Professor Lowry, uh, of books on economics of housing and, and housing development and all of these different articles and research papers, because that's just the way I am. I like to be a very well-read uh, individual before I embark upon anything. And this was the early stages. So I had the time. I was in my office. I had my secretary. I was having meetings day after day. As soon as I got there, sometimes to 8, 9 p.m. at night. I mean, I was just very committed to the role. And then when I finished one meeting that particular day. I received a call from the, sec from the uh, secretary's uh, chief of staff, who's over me. And she said, hey, um, are you busy? I said, hey, I'm wrapping up my last meeting. I'll call you back uh, when I'm done. She said, just come to my office. And I said, okay, sure, no big deal. I'm not thinking much of it. I go to her office. There's a gentleman there, and she's, she's a white woman, and her face is red, and she's crying. I said, oh, I know what the hell is going on here. Uh, so she starts reading from this paper and she said, they did the background check on your social media and found that you wrote this article, blah, blah, blah. And I said, okay. I said, so I'm getting fired. I didn't even let her finish. I said, so pretty much they're letting me, she said, yeah, they're, they're, they're letting you go. And she wanted to give me a hug and a guy from the White House Office of Legal Affairs, whatever the heck it was, like, you can't talk to him. Don't <laughs> hug him. You got to get your box. You got to get out of the building. I mean, it was just so, it was outrageous to me. And, and it happened. And you know what? 
I remember talking to some of my my bros about it, Morehouse brothers about it. And I said, you know, look, I knew the risk when I ultimately agreed to Dr. Carson's ask of serving him as secretary because I knew how the former president was. And but with that aside, you know, talking to other people, I said, you know what, look, I'm going to go in. I know who I am. I know what my views are. And I'm going to do the best job that I can uh, to advise the secretary to make the best decisions for the country as it pertains to housing, which was in his purview, right? That it's housing, it's housing secretary. And whatever happens, happens. All right. And now, so, so with, I, with, I, I, I wasn't surprised. With the benefit of hindsight, uh, what do you think of the former president's presidency? What kind of job did he do for the country? And he looms large in the future. Yeah, he'll be the nominee. That's for uh, this sure. This upcoming uh, election cycle, uh, some people say democracy teeters on the brink, yeah. uh, et cetera. <laughs> January 6th, incitement, insurrection, and so forth. What I'm going to give you an invitation to opine about what kind of uh, leader and what, what it means for the country that he is in such a prominent position. Ahead in the polls, I hear. Yeah. I mean, yeah, he, he's had a head in the polls. And when he first announced last November, I remember I was on air saying that Trump's going to be the nominee. I just didn't see any of the known names at that time who were considering jumping in the race, having the ability to usurp his lead uh, with with the average Republican base voter. So I'm not surprised that he's in the lead. He's maintained the lead and he will be the nominee. And at this point, I think the primary process is frankly a waste of time, to be quite honest. Um, overall, I mean, I, I think from an economic perspective, I think the president did a good job. I think before COVID, things were going well. And I think if the COVID pandemic didn't occur, I, I think most Americans, regardless of their personal views about his character, and there's a lot to say there, would have said, I'm happy with the economic progress of the country. We have not really found ourselves in too many foreign conflicts. Uh, most people are happy about that. I think most Americans have zero interest in prolonged, very expensive, deadly military conflicts across the world. And and Trump maintained that. Then you fast forward to the pandemic. Any president would have had a very challenging time during the COVID pandemic. It's just a reality. I mean, you're an economist, Professor Lowry, you know this well. You start looking at the uh, supplemental poverty measure, the SPM, uh, you you start, which essentially is how we measure uh, what percent of Americans are teetering towards poverty, are living in poverty. You, you, you look at jobless rates uh, for Americans, generally speaking, but specifically uh, communities of color. Uh, you, you look at household incomes and you see precipitous declines. And so any president with all of those economic variables, which you understand well, would have had a very difficult time managing the country. I think we got a vaccine out of it and there are a lot of views on the vaccine, but the Trump administration led that. Now we can <laughs> debate about various comments and statements that were made <laughs> that led up to it. And, and, and I'm open oh, to yeah. that. Oh, you mean the part about injecting with bleach and that kind of stuff? <laughs> and, 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 and I don't think that that served him well, but I think if we're able to be nuanced about the successes and we're able to look at the data which I think is fundamentally important, then you can point to successes. But pointing to successes does not mean one becomes oblivious to shortcomings. And and that is where I have sometimes had some level of disagreement 
um, with friends of mine who support the former president, and even the former president himself. One should be able to support you, but also be critical of your shortcomings. To be critical does not mean one hates you, despises you, but it means one wants you to, to be better, to, to be exalted at your highest form, whatever that may be. And, and, I, and I don't think that there's always an openness to that, in my opinion. Yeah. Let, let me ask you this. Um, I have a friend who's a political scientist. Stephen Tellis is his name. He teaches at Hopkins, at Johns Hopkins. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And uh, he actually taught me this. You know, he says, the way our institutions work, part of it is formal. You have laws, you have the Constitution, you have, you know, you have the administrative structures and whatnot mm-hmm. and the rules. But part of it is informal. It, it, it depends. You know, you just made the conservative argument, the, the yeah. argument of Roger Scruton or the Edmund Burke. I mean, we have yeah. certain traditions, we have certain customs, we have certain conventions, certain understandings. Yeah. Uh, for example, when you lose an election, you concede. Yeah, yeah, you just do. I lost. It's over. I'll try to get next time. That that would be one of those examples. Or you govern the way in which you talk about sensitive issues in politics. You don't call people vermin who are trying to get across the board into your country illegally. You you don't want to encourage that kind of sentiment. Yeah, yeah. you you tamp down violence when it sticks up its ugly head. You don't play into it. You don't joke about it. You, 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 you know, um, I, I'm not going to go on a long tirade against Trump, but what I'm saying, I learned from my friend Steve, is that the system works not just because of the rules, but also because of people's internalization of certain norms of restraint yeah. mm-hmm. and respect for certain conventions and practices and reverence for certain institutions. Yeah, I agree. Now, now the president, in the events leading up to January 6, 2021, flagrantly flaunted some of these norms. So goes this argument. Mm-hmm. It's an argument that I'd be prepared to endorse. Uh, he should have stepped aside, notwithstanding the questions, legitimate questions that could have been raised about that election. Uh, the sure. court's are there to resolve those kind of questions. And, that, know, and, and look, that, and professor, that, that was, that was tried. That was tried 60 something times. Uh, even even conservative success. jurists, they said, look, it, it, it's not there. And, 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 and it, if I could have been advising the former president, there's no way to know if he would have listened to me or not. But I would have said, look, we lost this thing. Let, let's concede it. And immediately once you concede it, but I'm running again in four years. In the next four years, I'm going to crisscross this country talking about everything that's wrong under this new Biden Democratic administration. But he didn't, didn't, do, that. He didn't, didn't do that. He didn't do that. He didn't do that. He did the opposite of that. And the results have not been good for our country, I would I say. Agree. And now he stands on the precipice of coming back into office. And the question becomes, if you're a responsible citizen, whatever your party, mm-hmm. what do you have to say about that? You know, that, that's, that's an interesting question. Um, Biden apparently just announced that he's going to run on, not run on, but one of the the components of his campaign will focus on Trump being a threat to democracy. And I don't know, I just said this uh, last week, I believe on CNN, I'm not exactly sure how effective that message will be. I, I think, you know, people become desensitized over time. I mean, psychologists have written about this 
uh, for years. When, when people, that the stimuli that comes from something initially, it wanes over time where people just, it just becomes baked in. It's like, okay, you know, either I like him or I don't. I think he's a threat or I think he's not. You're, you're not going to change too many people's minds in that regard. Uh, and, and so to, to that question about what type of duty should people have or voting for him or not against him because maybe he's going to have a grievance uh, can't, uh, presidency if he were to win again, I, I'm not necessarily sure if, if people see it that way. I, I think the average person, including those who uh, support him, even his most ardent supporters, they're looking at the, stat, the state of, econo- of the economy. Uh, they, they're looking at the state of education for their children. They're, they're looking at immigration. They're, they're looking at things that far more directly impacts their day-to-day lives versus this philosophical, ubiquitous idea of this guy being a threat to the democracy or a threat to the institutions of the country. I don't think that most people are thinking in those terms. I don't think most people think about that at all, to be quite frank. I think most people, when I've traveled the country talking to voters, regardless of color, they're thinking about, can I take care of my bills, my rent, my mortgage? Can I afford to put my kids through college if that is an option they choose? Can I afford to have them in extracurricular activities and programs so that they can pursue their interests? That's what people are thinking about. They're not thinking about these, these other things. And so when you look at it from that perspective and you raise the question of why President Biden isn't doing well and why uh, so many Americans are open to the idea of voting for uh, President Trump, I think people are willing to dismiss whatever those other concerns may be uh, because they think Trump is going to be better at handling things that are more pertinent to their everyday life. And, and that can't be dismissed nor overlooked. You work with Ben Carson. He is a, a believer. He's a Christian believer, as I recall. Did you have in your outreach efforts uh, much intersection with the evangelical community? I did. I did. That, that was actually perhaps... The group that I focus on the most, I would say, uh, we, we had an entire team of, of individuals uh, that I also worked alongside of that were focused on targeting uh, well-known pastors and faith leaders, um, evangelical activists in certain places like Ohio, Iowa, South Carolina. Uh, so, so, yeah, I spent a lot of time around evangelicals. How do you account for the apparent popularity of Donald Trump? Uh, given the character issues that you've called attention to <laughs> with with this uh, conservative Christian community. And by that, you mean some of the, you know, things yeah, the, with the wives. The yeah, yeah, porn yeah. stars. We can, and go the, there. You know. we can go there, Professor. <laughs> <laughs> you know, that's, I would get that question so often from a lot of my close friends uh, who aren't Republicans. They would always say, I just do not understand this. And I would always tell them, when you are presented with an opportunity to get something that you have fought a very long for a long time for to bring into fruition, you don't care who the person is to bring it into fruition. It could be the worst person in the world. Doesn't matter. You think about evangelicals and trying to reverse Roe versus Wade. This goes all the way back since the first ruling. Evangelicals immediately said, "We we got to combat this. We got to change this. It needs to return back to the states." And for fifty years, they've been trying. And all of a sudden, you look at the state of the court and you see jurists are getting older. They're going to be leaving or dying. And then you have a Republican who's a nominee who has an opportunity to nominate and and ultimately have individuals confirmed who can then in turn change this ruling that you fought for for half a century. You could care less what this person's past or devious 
behavior may have been. This is the tool to get us to where we're trying to go. I don't care if it's a Ford truck or a Prius, it's going to get us there, then we're getting in it. And then that's, and, and, and to, you know, not to be so reductionist about this, because I love this question. I think that's how a lot of them saw it. And when you talk to even Joe, they say, look, yeah, we, we know about it. He certainly isn't the best person, but he has a chance to appoint some judges. And that's important for X, Y, and Z reasons I would hear. And so that's ultimately why. It's not because of some great affinity uh, towards Donald Trump being uh, this great example of moral and ethical aptitude. Uh, that's, that's, that's not what I'm saying at all. It was, this is a means to get something that is pertinent and of significant importance to us as a collective, that being evangelicals. And if this is the means by which we'll get to the destination, then we're all getting on board. Okay. Let me ask about Morehouse. Well, mm-hmm. Who did you encounter there? I don't want you to feel uh, putting anybody on the spot or anything like among your teachers and influences that are most memorable and, and uh, the experience of going to a historically black uh, college, an I iconic uh, institution. Did you pledge a fraternity? What was that I, all you know about? What? I, I thought about pledging and I did not pledge. Um, and, and one of the reasons I didn't pledge is I didn't think it would be beneficial to what I was ultimately wanting to do career-wise. So I just didn't do it. I loved it. I mean, Morehouse is, is an amazing and incredible place. And I met some of the most, and still have as friends, some of the most brilliant men that I have ever encountered. And I've met a lot of incredible people because of my political background. Um, two of my favorite professors, I had Dr. Gregory Hall, who was chair of the political science department. Um, great guy, <laughs> great advisor in many ways. Would always give me a difficult time. He would say, you're doing too much. You need to be focused more on some of these courses. Uh, but I appreciate him for that advice because it paid off. But he didn't but, object to your politics. No, we would talk about it often. And he would challenge me all the time. And he would say, hey, you should think about this. Uh, or he would say, well, you, you should read more uh, on this. I don't think you've quite, quite grasped this topic as well as you think you have. I was always being challenged. Um, I think about the president at that time, Dr. Robert Michael Franklin. I remember the first time I ever heard Dr. Franklin speak at something we called Crown Form. Morehouse were known for great oratory skills. And you hear Dr. Franklin with this incredible deep voice that sort of raises from the belly up. And it was almost like the sound of God. I remember being an 18-year-old kid thinking, holy smoke, who is this guy? Uh, and I still have a great relationship with, with Dr. Franklin to this day. And, and again, people knew my politics and there yeah, were certainly disagreements, and, but he would also challenge me. But, but my favorite professor, who I still consider a mentor, an intellectual mentor to this day, is who I mentioned earlier, Professor Ilya Davis. There is not a single person that has had the greatest impact on me intellectually that I actually knew than Professor Davis. I mean, he challenged me so much in some uncomfortable ways in terms of my belief system and his thought process. And he would always tell me, you being a Republican, this is not going to be easy for you because not a lot of people in our community will agree with this. Uh, You're going to be in a lot of spaces where people will challenge you. And, And he always said, whether I agree with you or not, you need to be intellectually capable of defending yourself. I, I don't care about whether I agree. When you leave this place, no matter what environment room you're in, you need to be the brightest person in the room. 
And and I am I am so grateful for him for that because when I have been in certain rooms and you're talking electoral politics, it's very rare that you get into philosophy or political thought. But when those conversations do come up and, and people say, well, you know, I don't know about this particular policy position. I say, well, hey, if we're conservatives and this should be the belief because of X, Y, and Z things. And people say, well, I don't think so. Then I would always say, well, what is your conservatism steeped in? What is it rooted in then? Because uh, clearly there, <laughs> clearly it's, it's, it's not well rooted in anything if you truly understand what it means to be a conservative. And, and, and Professor Davis equipped me with that. There was another professor um, who was there and this professor was one of the, I think, the, one of the oldest professors in Morehouse's history. He started at Morehouse a couple years, maybe two years, Tove Johnson, after Dr. King graduated. That's how old Dr. Johnson was. And Dr. Johnson taught two or three courses, but the toughest course was Scope and Methods. And uh, Scope and Methods focused on polling, polling methodologies. And Professor Lowry, it was a tough course. I didn't even pass first semester, I had to retake the darn course again. Wow. It was tough. And I took the course again and I excelled the second time. And I ended up, um, it's a, it's a two semester course. And the second semester you work on your research. And I did my research on uh, the effectiveness of negative polling. And what I sought to prove was that negative polling, although people say, oh, we hate negative polling, it actually works. When you look at the data, people are indeed swayed by a barrage of negative polling. And that's what I focused on. Uh, and I'll, I'll never forget uh, Professor Johnson. One day I went to see him when I had to retake the course. And I said, Professor, why did you, why didn't I pass the course? I said, I was doing well on my work. And he said, yeah, you're doing well, but you're always missing the course because you're doing all this political stuff. Uh, you, 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 I was doing so many things in college. And so he said, that, you know, just passing a test is not enough. I remember saying, yeah, anyone can memorize some stuff. You need to be in the class engaging so I can actually see what you know. So you're going to have to retake it. And he didn't care. There were zero excuses. And I remember he said wow. to me, he said, Mr. Singleton, he said, you're brilliant. He said, you can do whatever you want to do once you leave this place. You go to law school if you want, run for office, you want whatever you decide to do. He said, but none of that will matter if you don't understand this thing called political science. He said, you can quote all of these great people. You're well read. He said, but Data is important. He said, you, you, you want to work in campaigns? He said, you got to understand this stuff. How do you compile data, focus groups, et cetera, et cetera? It, it, it's a critical component of electoral politics. And he said, whether you want to hear it or not, you will not be effective if this component of it is not understood by you. So he said, so you're going to take the course again. And I didn't want to hear that, but he was right, Professor Lowry. That, 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 that tough advice was proper. And so the next time around, I said, I have to understand scopes and methods. When, 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 we're, when I'm looking at all these polls today as, as a strategist, and I'm looking at the cross-tabulations, I can ask the questions of what type of data was used to choose these types of people. How was that factored in mathematically? Did you calculate for this? Did you overcalculate? I mean, all of those variables, as you know, as an economist, are critically important when you're talking about the accuracy of polling data and the methodologies behind that data. And you got to know that stuff if you're trying to get somebody elected to political office. Like, it's one thing to just look at some numbers, all right, we're ahead 20%, good. No, 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 no. 20% is great, but let me interpret that 20%. How does that translate into what direction the campaign needs to go or should not go, and maybe we need to reverse? So then you're talking about interpretation of the data. That's critically important, but you can't understand any of that stuff if you don't know and understand well 
scope and methods behind the data. And, and so uh, Professor Tobe Johnson equipped me with that skill set. So to answer that question, I love Morehouse. And, and it was a tough, rigorous place uh, for my personal academic development. And I love that. I, I'll, I'll tell you one other story. I had one professor. Oh, God, this professor drove me nuts. Um, it was a class. I can't remember the name of the course, but it focused on logic. And I'll never forget, I ended up breaking my foot. I think this was, this was my freshman year because I had to take his course again. <laughs> my, my first two years was kind of rough, uh, Professor Larry, because I was doing so, I wanted to be the class president. I was trying to work on campaigns and have a full course load. I was doing a lot of things. Uh, and, and I appreciated the experience though because I, I learned a lot in, in those first two years before the, all right, you got to get your crap together here. And I had a professor and I remember I broke my foot and I missed one of the critical exams. And he said, you're not going to pass the course. So I'm just going to drop you now because I don't want you to fail. I remember I wrote an email to him. And the email, you know, being a young person, I did it from my phone. I didn't spell out everything. I was like, you know, T-Y, thank you. You know, the, the young people kind of stuff. Yeah. I will never forget when I went to see him. He said, you're not showing yourself approved. And I said, what do you mean? I sent you the email. I explained everything. He said, you're smart. Everybody knows that about you. He said, there's no doubt about that. He said, but you can be lazy sometimes. I could be lazy. Do you see all of these things I'm doing? What are you talking about? <laughs> he said, go back and read your email. And so, Professor, I went back, I read the email. I was like, oh, crap. You know, I probably could have sent the better email. This is the professor. And he told me, he said, Mr. Singleton, when you're corresponding with people, and he's in your generation, you guys don't really care about this. He said, but you're a leader. Leaders have to care about the things that most people don't. And communication is a critical component of getting your ideas out there. It's how people are going to follow you, how people know what you're thinking, how you can convince people of certain things, how you can articulate and debate your position. You can't be lazy when you're writing. And, and so that was another very unique experience uh, for me. And, and I'll never forget, I ended up reaching out to him uh, a couple of years ago when I did my first article uh, for the Washington Post. And I said, Professor, I, I'm, not, I'm not as lazy as I was at 18 years old. <laughs> he replied back, and, and this is so funny, Professor Lau, he replied back, LOL, it's so good to hear from you, Mr. <laughs> <laughs> That's funny, man. That's really funny. You're warming my heart with your stories about Morehouse, though, where I gather <laughs> there, is no, there is no great inflation. People are tough. No, no. <laughs> uh, and there's a sense of we're we're shaping the future of our people uh, in terms of what the professors think they're doing with the talented young people like yourselves. Uh, Absolutely, and that, that's that's a beautiful thing. I didn't hear you talk about any economists though. You didn't take any <laughs> economics courses. I, you know what? I, I took several, <laughs> and this is where you come into place, and individuals like uh, Dr. Soul comes into place, and Milton Friedman. Uh, who was actually w one of my favorites. It started with Milton, that led to uh, Professor Soul, and ultimately led to, to you. Uh, because for me, at Morehouse, been in HBCU, I was always trying to find other Black men that sort of shared my worldview. And that was really, really important to me because I just knew I couldn't be the only freaking one. I mean, everybody would say, yeah, there were Republicans. So I was thinking, well, who are the intellectual ones? Because those are the people that I want to watch. I want to read their writings. Uh, and so it, it was you two in particular that I really spent a lot of time reading your writings. I watched a lot of clips of, of you and, and Professor Soul. Uh, debating on Milton's old show back in the 70s and 80s, talking about culture and politics and economics. 
Uh, and those things, again, also affirmed a lot of my political beliefs, if you will. I mean, you know, you know, I'll just give this example to you. I remember speaking a couple years ago um, at the Kennedy School of Government at Harvard. They would always invite me to do a lecture series to their graduate students on as a practitioner of electoral politics. It's one thing sure. to understand the theory, but you got to do the stuff. Uh, I think that's lost upon a lot of people <laughs> these days. Uh, but but I, I remember talking about uh, black voters and why a lot of black voters vote Democratic and what my thoughts were on that and, and why some black voters were starting to move a little bit to the Republican side. And there's a lot of data on this after President Obama. One of my good Morehouse brothers, Terrence Woodbury, who is the owner and founder of uh, Hit Strategies, is a Democratic polling firm, but he's done a lot of incredible work on, on the showcasing that movement. And I'll never forget, it was uh, something that I read that you wrote. I think this was either my junior year at Morehouse. And I, I remember I remembered it during that particular lecture when I was responding to one of the students. And I said, you know, that's a fascinating question. I said, but I think in terms of politics um, and race and all of these other things that we experience as, as people, particularly as Black people, I said, I think what we do not understand is the determination of power in America. And the determination of power in America is based upon what you control, ultimately what you own, right? And when you think about freedom, you have to have some level of economic prosperity to truly be free. Because freedom means you have the ability to choose whatever you want. That's, that's real freedom. And that only comes with a certain level of economic freedom and economic prosperity. And it was something you wrote, uh, Professor Lowry, and I'll probably be able to go back and find it um, after this, that sort of pinned that idea on me. And then I explored it more in my own way as I, as I got a little older and started getting a, uh, getting a little bit more into economics and trying to figure out what are some better pathways in terms of economic policies that could sort of help uh, Black people achieve economic prosperity, but also maintain it. Because that's one thing we... We have a lot of individual stories of Black people who have attained financial success. Uh, a smaller percentage of that have actually been able to maintain it. Uh, but as a collective, we just don't have it at all. And so for me, through a policy perspective, I'm trying to figure out what does that look like? Is this something that you can e even legislate? And then you start realizing, okay, education has a, a significant component of it. A family structure is important, although I know we don't like to think about it in those terms. And we dismiss that too freely, in my personal opinion. Uh, so to that question of in economics, it was, it was you guys, you two in particular, and, and there were others, economic theorists that I would read. They weren't black, but, but, but you guys, and again, not to make this all about race, were just so important to me trying to figure out what is Shermichael's identity as I'm trying to shape this thing. And I'm reading all of these old masters, as I like to call them, whether it's political theory, economic theory. This is great. But who are the guys like me that I can look up to and say, okay, I can watch these guys. I can read these guys. And this will sort of help guide me in knowing that it's okay to be a conservative. And it's okay to explore whatever that means and how complicated and complex that may be for you. Enjoy that intellectual pursuit. And that's why, you know, as I said to your wife, when I first got that email from your assistant, I was so freaking happy to see that. And I remember telling my parents about it and my grandparents and a couple of my, my close friends, and, and, they were, and they all know who you are. And they said, oh, this is going to be interesting. And, and, and it's not very often, however, Professor, that you get opportunities to talk to people who were sort of a light 
for you in a very dark tunnel and, and figuratively meaning here I was surrounded by people who, for the most part, didn't have my outlook on a, a lot of things, a plethora of things. And so you're looking for that escape. And, you know, your writings, your appearances on various programs was my escape. Well, I can't uh, but say I appreciate hearing that. I really, I really, really do. <laughs> I. As we close, I, I wonder if you're still in touch with Dr. Carson and what he's doing with himself these days. Doc is doing well. He started, I want to say a year or two ago, something called the American Cornerstone Institute. It's a nonprofit organization focused on politics and policy. He's back on the speaker circuit, speaking circuit right now, traveling the country, giving speeches, and he's slowly getting back into politics. I'm not getting involved in it this time. I like commenting <laughs> on it. I like analyzing it. I love writing about it. Uh, but I, I think I'm, I'm good, Professor, on doing the day-to-day work. I, I've, I've done it at every level. You don't really get higher than what I've done unless you decide to run for office yourself. I've had my share of experiences. <laughs> you mean he's considering running for office again? I didn't say that. I did okay. not say that. I want to be clear on that. <laughs> All right. I want to be clear on that. I'm just simply saying he's getting engaged again. Uh, he just did a thing, I, I believe, a month ago, introducing uh, former President Trump at an event in, I think, Ohio or Iowa. He just did a, a big interview, I think, with Breitbart News a couple of days ago talking about Trump. So I, I don't work with him the way I used to, but still communicate with, with some folks who still do. And he's getting back engaged in the process as it's kind of clear that Trump is going to be the Republican nominee. And so you'll probably see a lot more of him, I would imagine. Well, my guest has been Shermichael Singleton. Uh, he is a Republican. He's a strategist and an operative with a lot of experience in campaigns. He's got a radio show coming soon from Sirius XM. You want to tell us about that? Yeah, yeah. So I'm currently on uh, Sirius XM Urban View, uh, Channel 126, every Saturday from 2 to 3. So I am, you know, I, I guess people always say token black Republican, where I'm like the token black conservative on the black channel. Uh, so I'm the only conservative voice, uh, but we're looking at some movement to give me more time as the radio show has actually done really, really well, uh, which, which is great to me because there's an appetite, I think, among uh, Black Americans to just start hearing some different perspectives. Uh, people want to hear from different voices uh, and, and voices that are in touch uh, with our, the uniqueness of our heritage. But, th- but that's also, that also approaches politics a little differently. And I, I think there's a lot of people who are saying, you know, we've tried the same thing for a long time. Is it going to necessarily hurt us uh, to maybe do some things a, a little differently? I don't think so. And so the show's going well. So now we're looking at expanding that time uh, to maybe a Monday through Friday show. So that may be coming uh, very soon. But Professor, I want to ask you this question before you end the show. Okay. Uh, this is something I've always wanted to ask you. In terms of your personal uh, philosophical beliefs. Is there any one thinker, writer of the past that's your favorite? <laughs> uh, gosh. <laughs> uh, you know, I, I'm an economist first and firm, foremost. I got a PhD mm-hmm. from MIT in the 1970s, yep. and and there there were great economists amongst my teachers. One of them just died. His name is Robert Solo. His name was Robert mm-hmm. Solo, Bob Solo, Nobel honoree, uh, growth theory, economic growth, uh, but 
big impact across many different fields in economics. He was my teacher. But he would have only been one of a number of great economists. Paul Samuelson would have been another one among my teachers. Um, You mentioned Thomas Sowell. Mm -hmm. Uh, I never actually was in a classroom or lecture hall with him at the same time, but I read his books and uh, I've not always been as avowedly a intellectual conservative as I am today. Mm-hmm. But even in my liberal phase, uh, Tom Sowell stood out uh, for the clarity of his thought, for the mm-hmm. profundity of his analysis, for his attention to data, his factually grounded argumentation, um, and for his uh, his uh, Hayekian conservatism, his, yeah. you know, very uh, disciplined kind of clear uh, I defense of liberty and property and the market and all of that. And that always appealed to me. There were others, but, uh, I, I had an, uh, as an undergraduate, I was, I went to Northwestern University mm-hmm. in Evanston, Illinois. Very fortunate. I was a transfer student from a community college. When I got out there, I spent two years and the summer in between at Northwestern. It changed my life. It absolutely changed my life. And uh, I had a teacher there, an economist, economic historian named Jonathan Hughes, who said to me, look, man, you got mathematics and I was a mathematics major, but economics is really about philosophy. It's about history. It's about society. It's about politics. Read biographies, read histories, you know, uh, don't just go with the numbers. The numbers are, are important, but they're not the only, you were just saying, don't forget the numbers. That's right. You know, you, you got to be able to do the statistical analysis <laughs> to do, to do politics, <laughs> but you can't just live in the numbers if you want to be. And he kind of made me into an intellectual. He said, you know, read the New York Review of Books, you know, uh, read Commentary Magazine and the Atlantic Monthly and, and, and whatnot. Uh, you know, go and talk to the historians and, and the philosophers, you know, Roger Scruton, great man. He was oh, my colleague great. when I taught at Boston University back in the 90s. Um, you know, I, I knew, uh, Roger Scruton, uh, but yeah, so I didn't answer your question. You had said who were my heroes and uh, hero, and it, there's not one hero, but there were a yeah. number of people who had big influences on me. So that, that's impressive. Uh, I, I'm not <clears throat> well versed on, uh, Dr. Solo, but I'm familiar with him. I want to say four or five, well, maybe more than four or five years ago. God, this was right when we were coming out of the big great recession during Obama's term, so several years ago. And I remember watching a lecture, I think it was a Harvard lecture, and some economists were were talking about growth theory and why the federal government was frankly obligated to sort of stabilize the markets. First time I ever heard a solo. Uh-huh. First time. So that that's so funny that this was someone who taught you and wow, man, it's, it's this is just such a pleasure talking to you. I, I, this is, I'm just so excited and thrilled uh, about this. And I got to tell you, Professor, I, I really hope um, with all of the great work that you've done over time that th- there is a greater appreciation uh, for you. And I just certainly uh, want to tell you that I think when you're a conservative, happens to also be black, uh, people are quick to diminish or overlook uh, the intellectual and academic uh, pursuits, but also successes. And I think that's fundamentally important. I mean, uh, we are nothing without knowledge. We're literally nothing. And that old aphorism, knowledge is power, is a very real thing. It truly, truly is. I mean, the human experience is very complex. And when you look at all of the great thinkers from 
uh, Kant, who's my favorite uh, political philosopher. Uh, you, you look at so many others and they talk about the human condition and our interaction, and Socrates and Plato and Aristotle and, and how that interaction uh, is compiled onto itself. Once you put people in this sort of governing state, this governing body, you think about all of those things and then you really realize you need the intellectuals uh, because everything is built upon an idea. Somebody has to explore those ideas. Someone has to challenge others' explorations of those ideas. Uh, and so I hope that people appreciate that about you. I certainly do. Uh, this has just truly been an honor. It really has been. Thank you for saying that. Uh, it's been very enjoyable for me to talk with you. Very talented, articulate, intelligent young man. The future. I'm looking at the future right here. <laughs> <laughs> so God bless you. Godspeed. God bless uh, you. Chair Michael year. Singleton, Republican strategist and commentator and operative uh, and uh, uh, a joy to talk with. So thank you. Thanks, Professor.